hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I wanted to launch off this section of the report on contemporary changes in society as well as music. I never thought I would hear the day when the word vaccine or the action of vaccination would be part of music lyrics. But can you imagine this has now happened? Let's listen to this song by Sean Galloway. When we know the rate of survival is over 99.9% They're twisting the words of our fathers Making their play for control Before they destroy what's remaining It's time we let them know children hands off hands off their minds hands off hands off their bodies this time you've crossed the line hands off hands off our freedoms hands off on this hill we'll die fighting for our children This time you've crossed the line Stop teaching them hate and division Bring our kids back to the light Let's raise one voice for the voiceless Protecting their innocent rights This time you've crossed the line We're not gonna take it Enough is enough People, parents, we've got to rise up Hands off, hands off our children Hands off, hands off their minds 
the line. Well, there you have it there. Sean Galloway is giving it to you in terms of a very clear message. Hands off our children. uh, Hands off their uh, lives. Uh, We have a situation here where we know 98% of parents and children accept vaccines. We don't see hands off our children for the diphtheria vaccine or pertussis or um, or uh, hepatitis B or other vaccines. We ex- readily accept vaccines in the United States, over 70 in total. And many of you listening, you've taken all your vaccines. We're not out there protesting. Everyone knows something's gone wrong. Our public health agencies, the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, uh, the vaccine manufacturers, that they are way off target. COVID-19 is a problem among the elderly, that it can be a serious illness among the elderly. But to focus and have the efforts all leveled against the children is way off target from a public health perspective and offers them considerable harm. We have no idea what the long-term impact is going to be on childhood vaccination. Uh, The parents, no one seems to want it. And you you can hear the resistance absolutely brewing and amplifying and becoming greater and greater over time. People are at the point where they are just not going to put up with this continued advance with vaccination on children who don't need the vaccine. Many of them have already had COVID-19. They're fully immune, and so they have no ability to potentially benefit from a vaccine, even those susceptible, as in the clinical trial published by Frank and colleagues in the May 27th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, showed no clinical benefit. You know, vaccines, uh, this case Pfizer being administered to children ages uh, 12 to 15, but basically reduced uh, or eliminated 18 cases of the sniffles in kids, and it had no clinical benefit whatsoever. There was no uh, uh, severe disease reported uh, in either group. Uh, there was no uh, spread to parents reported in either group. And uh, to rely on an antibody response uh, in children and antibody responses and boosters broadly to others, this surrogate endpoint violates everything we know in clinical trials, violates everything we know in terms of good clinical practice. And at this point in time, uh, we can say the experiments were done in children, uh, that they uh, were not promising, we have great concerns over safety. We now know that the myocarditis is a real risk in children. Our FDA agrees with official warnings on myocarditis. Separately, we know with the adenoviral vaccines, with uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, the risk of thrombosis, particularly in young women, apply. And so we have a situation where the vaccines, the uh, risks far outweigh the benefits. Uh, the natural infection is mild and generally well-tolerated. And if severe symptoms uh, present themselves, they can be readily treated with medications to ease uh, through the illness and not require hospitalization and certainly not die of COVID-19. Every childhood hospitalization or death I've ever heard of, which is very rare with COVID-19, is a product of inadequate or no early treatment for the illness. But this song by uh, Sean Galloway is not the only one. There are now a whole variety of intense uh, musical uh, uh, pieces that are emerging, uh, not just about COVID-19, but broadly against our uh, restriction in freedoms, uh, its interface with spirituality. And I want you to listen to this one. This uh, rap contemporary 
song by Struggle Jennings and Caitlin Curtis, God We Need uh, You Now, is really powerful. I've received a ton of feedback in our circles on this, particularly younger people and parents uh, and young people who are looking at what's going on uh, that's uh, largely a menace of the COVID-19 vaccines that's been placed over the world. Let's have a listen. We need you now. We need you now. 
You have to admit, that's really powerful. Whether these words refer to child trafficking, child abuse, or the use of a vaccine in children that no one wants, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is powerful. You can hear these powerful messages. You know, the social fabric of America and the world is now influenced by COVID-19, not just as a serious illness, but the vaccine as a sociological menace on society. And I think Dr. Peter Bregan said it right. I remember, distinctly remember having an interview with him in either December of 2020 or early of January in 2021, where he told me, Peter said, listen, the vaccines are a menace. They are a menace to society and they will become uh, readily recognized as a menace. And he's right. It is coming out in uh, our, our expression through music that something's going on. So the question is, how bold should we really get with respect to COVID-19? Some have accused me of being potentially the most bold there is out there. Uh, and there's been on more than one occasion on an interview, I've looked at the camera and I've said, bring it on in terms of my detractors. Bring it on in terms of those who actually want to debate and discuss and vet this issue and find a path forward. And as I've said multiple times, there's not a single individual who's actually ever engaged in a reasonable conversation, let alone be on a panel or a roundtable to discuss anything with respect to a treatment of COVID-19, uh, the illness as it stands today, or the vaccine program. And I can tell you, I recently appeared with uh, Fior Hernandez, uh, in a program in Frisco, Texas. She's a wonderful Hispanic journalist. And I can tell you, you can hear me bringing it uh, and, and, and referencing Steve Kirsch, the bold leader of the, of the COVID early 19 treatment fund. I've had Steve on the McCullough Report in the past. He's in our circles. He's not a doctor, but I tell you, he's a very, very bright individual. He's a business leader. He understands data, and he knows when something is going wrong. Let's listen. The director of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund, Steve Kirsch, has actually put out a challenge. He said anybody who wants to sit down and just have a conversation or a debate on early treatment and vaccine and safety and efficacy, he'll pay them $2 million. And do you know, not a single individual has come forward to even have a debate or a discussion. Who wouldn't want $2 million? He's offered a million dollars to anyone who can point out anything that the National Institutes of Health, the CDC, and the FDA has done correctly in pandemic response, just to make the case. Who wouldn't write a few paragraphs to get a million dollars? So I can tell you, the individuals who are on, I guess, some other side of this issue, are fearful. They're fearful of their own position. 
I think they're regretful. I think they're uncertain. And they clearly don't want to come forward in any type of fair discussion. So the forms of censorship that we're seeing and things going on behind the scenes are very much uh, a manifestation of cowardice. So we called it, and I can tell you, this is really starting to escalate as an issue. And I am not afraid to call out cowardice when I see it. It is all over the place at this point in time. We are seeing evidence of broad censorship. We're seeing evidence of malfeasance at multiple levels. Things are going wrong in this country. There has never been so many lawsuits that are being filed to halt these vaccine mandates, uh, to call our federal agencies and the vaccine manufacturers into accountability to see the data, to understand what's going on. Uh, we have a crisis on our hands. The illness was bad enough, but now this issue of having vaccine injuries and acute vaccine syndromes now, throwing the medical community into complete chaos uh, is uh, beyond belief. Uh, at this point in time, we've had over 15,000 uh, individuals reported to the CDC VAERS system, the U.S. system, as having died after the vaccine. We have over 700,000 safety reports certified by the CDC, over 250,000 uh, hospitalizations, emergency room visits, office visits, over 20,000 individuals, the CDC tells us, are now permanently disabled after the vaccine. That is a giant number. Do you know at any given time, uh, our U.S. hospital census for acute respiratory COVID-19 crested between 120 and 130,000 individuals in the United States, each person putting in about four weeks in the hospital. When you actually calculate out the relative impact of the COVID-19 illness and the vaccine program, they do present a risk-benefit equation that is far from being satisfactory for vaccines as opposed to deferring on the vaccines and treating COVID-19 the best we can as an outpatient and dealing with hospitalization or worse as an eventuality that could happen in very advanced cases. But we clearly need to move the ball down the field we're doing that this week. I made a presentation at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln on the campus. Uh, the crowds were uh, robust. Every seat was filled. Students, uh, adults, other stakeholders. And within two days, the Nebraska Attorney General filed a report. And his report cited my work and others in our circles and stated that under no circumstances would physicians in Nebraska receive any penalties or threats of reprisal or harm to their professional status for the appropriate use of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in the treatment of acute COVID-19. This was a shot that was heard all over the country and broadly welcomed by the ever-growing early treatment community among physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants who are trying to treat America out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So hats off to the Midwest, Nebraska. It was wonderful to get up there, to see the enthusiasm, to see the interest. Uh, this is almost becoming like pop culture now. There are heroes. There are heroes that are treating patients 
early for COVID-19 that are recognizing the issues of vaccine safety and efficacy. They have the courage to speak out against the cowardice of those who continue to uh, push the vaccines on individuals who don't want them. No one seems to know who's deciding on vaccine mandates, but they clearly are unwelcome. And boy, are those uh, people who are in the vaccine stakeholder group, what's been called the vaccine cabal, are they getting pummeled? at this point in time. The uh, artillery is firing on all sides of the equation. And our side, in terms of those who, who are advocating early treatment and, and, and looking critically at vaccine safety and efficacy, not anti-vax, uh, I think all of us would welcome a safe and effective vaccine for our high-risk seniors uh, who are due to get comp- uh, acutely ill and that our CDC is telling us are not completely protected by the COVID-19 vaccines, that everyone would welcome a form of vaccination that potentially could help those individuals uh, end up avoiding hospitalization and death. Even if the vaccines weren't perfect, I think we'd accept that. And so at this point in time, uh, there's no one in our circles that I can think of among uh, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, the Truth for Health Foundation, America Frontline Doctors, Frontline Critical Care Consortium, Frontline Critical Care Nurses, other relevant related groups that are out there uh, that are led by others, uh, and there's probably about 50 of them. No one could uh, be, be characterized as being anti-vax. We've all taken our, our vaccines, and I've heard that over and over again, that false characterization that comes out of the shadows of cowardice of those who are advancing COVID-19 vaccination. But our CDC keeps telling Americans that the vaccines are now in wholesale failure. Uh, Here are the data uh, reported on the CDC website as of October 12th. These are the vaccine breakthrough cases the CDC is aware of. It's not the universe of cases, but it's the cases that they're aware of. They indicate that they believe that um, 187 million Americans have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19 vaccine. They are telling America 31,895 patients uh, have fully broken through the vaccine and either have died or been hospitalized. Sadly, 23% of that number uh, represents deaths. And unfortunately, of the deaths, 85% are those over 65 and 67% of the hospitalizations are those over 65. So I can tell you that COVID-19 has always been a crisis among the elderly. It remains a crisis of the elderly. And in no way, shape, or form should we have a focus on children when we have large numbers of elderly people being failed by the vaccines. Uh, They are not in the public eye. Our CDC, NIH, and FDA are not mentioning the crisis in the elderly. They have an incessant preoccupation with children. And everybody can tell that's wrong. And that's the reason why I played those music pieces for you, for you to understand that America and the world recognizes that a focus on the children by our public health agencies and the vaccine stakeholders is completely and totally off target, and it must stop now. And it really means for all of individuals who are in uh, positions of authority, including doctors, other health providers, civic leaders, uh, for them to really stand up and redirect our focus to the elderly who deserve it. They deserve our attention and take the pressure off the children There's not a single child, there's not a single parent who in their heart really wants COVID-19 vaccination and offer their children only 
an opportunity to be damaged by the vaccines with no opportunity for benefit. COVID-19 in a child is a blessing because they can get through the illness, develop natural immunity, and we can have no more worries. I'm not the only person who believes this, and I can tell you, I wanted to show you a brief uh, snip uh, clip from uh, West Texas Maverick, Dr. Richard Bartlett, somebody who I really want to get on the McCullough Report. He's a visionary leader and gets credit for, for the discovery of budesonide, uh, an inhaled steroid that is associated with 80% reductions in hospitalization and death. But Dr. Bartlett doesn't stop there because he has fully embraced all the tools that we need to treat our elderly appropriately uh, for acute COVID-19. And he realizes that a part of our struggle is indeed spiritual as uh, that one of those uh, music pieces that I uh, played indicates. So let's listen to Dr. Bar Bartlett briefly. The reality is we're not helpless and we're not hopeless. Uh, that God has given us provisions before there's a problem. And uh, monoclonal antibodies do not discriminate. They will work whether you've been vaccinated or not. That's, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people's symptoms literally lift off of them while they're sitting in the chair for the 30 minute infusion. We're seeing, I'm hearing report after report, I just did my breathing treatment, my nebulizer treatment with budesonide, and, and my oxygen level went from the 80s up to the 90s, and, and my shortness of breath is gone, my chest tightness is gone. And so we have tools that are readily available. We're not helpless, we're not hopeless. God has given a provision before there was a problem. That's absolutely fantastic. God has given us a provision before there was a problem. We need leaders like Richard Bartlett and we need them in positions of authority all over the country and all over the world. I can tell you that COVID-19 has been a call to arms. And COVID-19 has separated the men from the boys, the women from the girls. It really has revealed who we are, who are going to be our heroic champions to care for others, uh, and, and who are they going to be the individuals who are going to sink into the darkness, who are going to be sniping at Americans and sniping at the heroes from anonymity? Who are those who are going to be attempting censorship and attempting uh, reprisal and damage uh, to those leaders uh, in order to advance their overall mission of propagating fear, isolation, loneliness, hospitalization, and death. There appears to be a segregation, a struggle almost, of those who wish uh, uh, malice on the world and those like Richard Bartlett that want to bring the world out of this crisis and restore us back to our full abilities to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I know this segment really has taken on almost a metaphysical or spiritual nature to it, but many believe we are in a spiritual battle. And the McCullough Report is a scientific report, uh, but in many ways, uh, science and spirituality and the way we interpret our spirituality, that is our framework, the religions that we're born into and largely carry through the part of our life, this is now interwoven into a giant struggle that's much bigger than our jobs. It's much bigger than the next soundbite that we give. Uh, we realize that something is going on. And one of the turning points that I had uh, in my career through COVID-19 was my interview in May with Tucker Carlson, where he started to realize that something indeed was going on. And there were critical questions that he asked that uh, he started to get a realization, I think for the first time, that in fact, things were much bigger than COVID-19. 
So this is May 7, 2021, and I was in Tucker Carlson Studios. Let's just listen to this interchange. So our viewpoint is that early treatment is a really important part of the pandemic response. Vaccination will complement what we're doing, but this idea of scrubbing early treatment in favor of keeping the population in fear in order to potentially better accept mass vaccination, I think has done a disservice. I testify- And do you think that was the motive? I mean, I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm a big the picture two guy. Are so, Why is this happening? The two are so tightly linked, it is unbelievable. So the pressure to suppress any hope of treatment is extraordinary. And it's in the minds of doctors all over the world through their medical societies, their journals, the public health committee. How many times has anybody come on from the CDC, the NIH, the FDA ever and gone for America and say, you know what, we have an early treatment approach or see your doctor regarding early treatment or we're gonna support doctors to use their innovation and put drugs together in combination. Listen, this is a fatal virus. Single drugs don't work. They don't work for HIV or hepatitis C. Everybody knew that. So the idea of, oh, we're gonna do a single drug and see if that saves the world. No, we look for signals of benefit and then acceptable safety, use drugs in combination. What we showed is that doing this, two separate papers, Zelenko in New York, Proctor in Dallas, 85% reductions in hospitalizations and death. But we have to start early. We can't just let people get sick at home. Okay, everything you're saying makes sense to the extent I understand it as a non-expert. But I still just have to bring you back to the question of why, because I, I can't get past it. That's so reckless and well evil if you're suppressing treatment of a life-threatening disease you're committing evil you're ensuring people die and yet clearly that's happened you say it's in order to encourage people to take a vaccine that began before there was a vaccine for one thing but even after the advent of the vaccine why the single-minded focus on the vaccine what is that uh, it's, and by the way i'm not making a case against vaccines but what is that about I'm very pro-vaccine. I've received every vaccine that's evidence-based and indicated. Uh, my patients have gotten the COVID-19 vaccine. My my family members have well, gotten- Well, you're an American. All Americans right, get vaccines. Right, I mean, right. no one's so against when, vaccines. We're not against vaccines. It, I had published an op-ed last summer in The Hill, and the title of it was The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccine Development Program. And the point of that paper was we are putting all of our eggs in one basket and it was so you can tell right there you could see how tucker carlson started to get amplified he recognized it in fact he said the word evil so i wanted to finish up this segment uh with just giving you the idea that there is a reaction out there to what's going on and the reaction has been going on for several months right now at the level of the major media uh and in music industry uh, sociology, certainly among uh, major medical uh, domains uh, that are out there and give you some uh, time to reflect on this. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, 
fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep, 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. I have one tonight, and I'm going to have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compared to if not taking it. So go to uh, HealthyCell.com, and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud, and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America on Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure and honor to welcome to the show today Dr. Richard Ammerling. Dr. Ammerling received his medical degree from the City College of New York in New York City. He went on to medical school in Europe. He went to the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium. He returned to the United States and did his internal medicine, medicine residency at the New York Hospital, uh, Queens Hospital. And then he went on to the prestigious University of Pennsylvania uh, Medical Center, the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania, and he trained in nephrology. And he had a long and distinguished queer career in nephrology. In the later part of his career, he moved into medical administration and was an outstanding lead professor in a medical school. And I, I asked him specifically to come onto the show uh, because of his new role in the American Frontline Doctors and his great interest in leadership in the issue of medical tyranny. Richard, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you so much for having me on this very important podcast that you do. Thanks very much, Peter. Well, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself in the latter years of your career and how you got into uh, professorship and the administration, really, of medical education? Oh, sure. Well, 
I was practicing nephrology in New York at the Beth Israel Medical Center, uh, which was a wonderful hospital in lower Manhattan and distinguished group of colleagues there. And then Mount Sinai took it over in around 2014. And I started to see that they were going to change it for the worst. And around 2016, I decided I was going to exit. And I saw an advertisement on the subway in New York City for St. George's University down in the Caribbean. I had heard of them, of course. We had trained people from there. And I contacted them, and one thing led to another. And in October 2016, I moved down to Grenada and took up a position as professor of clinical skills, teaching the basics of clinical diagnosis, history taking, uh, examination, clinical reasoning. I also uh, began a nephrology clinic at the local hospital, which was very rewarding in so many ways. Um, Ultimately, when COVID came and they closed the university to online teaching, everything uh, to uh, in-person teaching, everything went online. Uh, I went back to the States and I ended up working at Bellevue Hospital as a volunteer, helping with their uh, kidney disease issue, which they had an, a big uh, overload of their dialysis system due to COVID. So I was on the front lines at Bellevue during the pandemic. And then I went back to uh, Grenada, but came to loggerheads with the administration on their vaccine mandate policy, which I completely rejected. And they ended up putting me on administrative leave, which is really my status now. And right around the same time, I had gotten involved with uh, America's Frontline Doctors, which is an organization that I have followed from the beginning, uh, contributed to. And I started to uh, help out doing some uh, informal research projects and one thing led to another, and right around the same time as I was leaving the position at, uh, at Grenada, the uh, America's Frontline Doctors asked me to come on as the Associate Medical Director, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, for those of you who don't know, America's Frontline Doctors, founded by Dr. Simone Gold, uh, in response to what she perceived accurately as a growing tyranny, were doctors who were proposing, for example, early outpatient treatment with repurposed drugs such as hydroxychloroquine or later ivermectin were being uh, aggressively censored and deplatformed and harassed and threatened and threatened with loss of income and loss of licensure. So America's Frontline Doctors uh, was created out of that uh, morass and started to uh, give out the truth. And they became very famous after the White Coat Summit in front of the Supreme Court I believe in the early summer of 2020, where uh, which got about 20 million views before it was taken down by YouTube. But that really launched the organization that's become quite large. I think there are about 800,000 members now. And there's really a large staff, large organization. And we have several arms. One is the medical information. We try to give out the truthful information so people can get reliable data we uh, provide a telemedicine link where an, uh, an external telemedicine company helps people get access to early treatment. In other words, we're filling in for this huge void left by the majority of practicing physicians in the country. And we also have a legal arm and we've been uh, pursuing uh, justice in the courts largely versus the very uh, unconstitutional illegal vaccine mandates. And the latest is a lawsuit against Kaiser Permanente for their vaccine mandate that is uh, affecting 200,000 employees. Well, that's a terrific body of work. How many 
uh, employees does American Frontline Doctors have? I, I really couldn't tell you. I mean, I, I really do not know. And there are a lot of volunteers and it's very hard to distinguish employees from volunteers because everybody works very hard. Yeah, I think that's the case with almost all of these grassroots organizations that they start out almost exclusively as a volunteer organization, but people have such tremendous range of skills clinically, but for information technology, legally, and from a public policy perspective, they quickly become uh, formidable uh, powers out there. Uh, and in this case, really a voice of, of freedom and, and reasonability and, and you know, access to early treatments which is uh, vital right now. You know, the message is out there. The average American knows now that COVID-19 is treatable. And I can tell you early in 2020, they didn't realize that. No, for sure. And uh, I think you deserve a lot of credit for this because you brought it forward in such a major way. And, you know, you and I go back many years. And uh, when I first saw you talking in front of the Senate, testifying before the Senate, I said, oh my God, is that the Peter McCullough that I know from the conferences and, and meeting up in Italy? And sure enough, it was. And I said, my gosh, hats off to you for taking this stand because I knew that you were really putting a lot on the line. And it's so rare for uh, academically oriented, successful doctors to do that. Uh, they're, they're mostly hiding in the shadows. So, uh, Tremendous credit to you, my friend. Well, you and I could have put our heads in the sand, uh, ignored patients who are calling for help, uh, ignore the, the really giant gap, a therapeutic gap that exists, just continue to plot away with our chronic disease papers on heart and kidney disease. Uh, we could have just fallen in line, taken the vaccine, kept our comfortable incomes, uh, and just ignored a worldwide catastrophe going on outside of us. Or we could do what we did, Richard. What we did is we said, listen, this is our medical Super Bowl. Now's the time to get on the field and play the game while our colleagues are on the sidelines cowering in fear. And they're confused. Uh, they're remorseful. Uh, they don't know uh, what's, what's up and what's not. Uh, do you know that in our circles, millionaire Steve Kirsch, who's been a guest on the program in the past, has put out offers, multiple offers. I think the current one is $2 million. If anybody will come to the table and discuss vaccine safety and efficacy, uh, advocating for vaccines, do you, not, do you know not a single person will come forward in a public forum? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite incredible. And it's not just a fight for patients, which is crucial, obviously, uh, but it's also a fight for freedom. And that's the angle that attracted me to America's Frontline Doctors, because uh, Simone Gold saw this very early on, that this was about uh, loss of our Bill of Rights, essentially, and that if we don't push back heavily now, we lose them forever. And if America goes down, you know what happens to the rest of the world. I think there's a lot at stake. I agree with you. And I think that's the reason why many of us are pulling out all the stops here. Uh, and there are individuals now that are laying out everything. They're laying out their entire lives, their careers, their families' lives, uh, giving up everything they have in order to save freedom. And that first circle of medical freedom linked to the critical circle of social freedom critically linked to the circle of economic freedom. And we can see all this happening right in front of us. 
And right now, the issue at hand was the vaccines. Last year, the issue at hand was respiratory illness, COVID-19. In the future, uh, there'll be another issue at hand. I I have a feeling there's just going to be a cycle of these. It's hard to know what's going to be the next issue that arises. But one of the problems, Richard, is that uh, the medical establishment has fallen into lockstep with some type of worldwide plan to get a needle in every arm at all costs and to allow the virus to ravage populations uh, with reckless abandon. And at this point in time, the medical establishment is complicit. It's complicit in uh, really a giant uh, crime against humanity. And part of their exertion of this plan, whether it be intentional, unintentional, or just being uh, completely uh, uh, in lockstep with uh, a larger agenda is the issue of medical tyranny. So can you explain to uh, our audience from your viewpoint, what is medical tyranny? Well, it relates to a movement known as evidence-based medicine or EBM, which started back in the 90s as a very nobly intended uh, system to uh, categorically rank evidence from high to low as best versus worst, and then use the best, what they said the best evidence was in the uh, judicious management of patients. So it sounds great, okay? And this whole uh, mantle of evidence-based makes it sound very scientific. But when you really look into the details of how it was set up and ultimately hijacked, you realize that it is not very scientific. It's actually become more of a cult. And that has been used to tyrannize doctors who are trying to practice good old fashioned scientific medicine, like you, by the way, and like Pierre Corey and, 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 and uh, Paul Merrick, tr- treating patients the old fashioned way using scientific knowledge, clinical acumen, and uh, diagnostic and clinical skill to uh, address a new illness. And it's been missing largely because I think people have become so dominated by this evidence-based medicine concept. And out of evidence-based medicine came clinical practice guidelines. And I, you may or not may, may not remember, but I was speaking out about these many years ago because I saw that they were evil. And uh, the evidence-based medicine informs the clinical practice guidelines. The problem is the evidence is largely controlled by pharmaceutical industry and the analysts on these guideline groups are largely paid by the industry in various ways, either as speakers or consultants or researchers. So the outcome of these guidelines invariably is biased towards more and more intense drug therapy. And this is how we've become uh, tyrannized in a way. And I, I know for a fact that many of my colleagues back in Grenada, for example, are afraid to do anything that deviates from the WHO or the PAHO, the uh, the Pan-American Health Organization guidelines. And I I am on a chat with them and I keep telling them, guys, you are doctors. You must go out there and practice medicine. Forget about these guidelines. They are wrong. These groups are biased. They're industry funded and they're biased. You must treat patients based on good, solid science and clinical judgment. Boy, I completely agree. And I think our listeners uh, should try to get an appreciation about how diverse 
medicine really is in terms of clinical decision-making and how it's, it's um, common for us to quickly get into a clinical situation of which no clinical practice guidelines or randomized trials could possibly exist. Let me give you an example. I had a full day of patients yesterday. I had a woman who was 50 years old in the suburbs of Dallas-Fort Worth. She was actually fasting for religious reasons uh, with her husband. She was on about day three of a fast. She started to feel a little sick, and then she actually had a cardiac arrest. She uh, became unconscious. Her husband saw this. He started CPR. They called the paramedics. The initial rhythm is what we call torsade de point, which is a rhythm that identifies uh, an electrolyte abnormality uh, in her bloodstream. She was brought to the hospital. Then it turns out at the hospital, she tests positive for COVID and she has COVID-19 in the hospital. Fortunately, she has no neurologic damage. She recovers from COVID. Uh, her EKG now is rendered to be abnormal. And uh, she has a giant discussion with a variety of doctors regarding the need for an implantable defibrillator, the need for medications. Uh, she previously was perfectly healthy. She goes, I can't take any of this. She finally just checks herself out and uh, she patiently waits for an appointment with me. So now I see her, you know, weeks later, I start to pick up the pieces of this case and uh, she's on no medications and I examine her as I should, Richard. And, you know, I really carefully examine patients like you do uh, and lost art in medicine. And she has a biventricular heave. She has a dilated heart on exam. She has a compensatory mitral regurgitation murmur. And uh, invariably, she's going to have reduced left ventricular ejection fraction. And here I am now with a patient who has some form of a cardiomyopathy. And she had a convergence of factors that led to a cardiac arrest. I can tell you, there are zero guidelines to apply on what I should do next. So I use my judgment with respect to the tests I order, the drugs I use, how I counsel her, and how I establish uh, a, a, a diagnosis, prognosis, and management. A perfect example of uh, how we would integrate things and, and how valuable physicians are in terms of using their clinical judgment. What do you think uh, is, is now the, the, the critical area for doctors to use their clinical judgment in terms of acute COVID-19? Well, uh, obviously the issue of early outpatient treatment uh, dominates that discussion. And there is now so much evidence in support of this as a, as a modality, as an approach uh, and again, you have put out a lot on this, you know, published these papers that everybody now refers to. So I think the, the first decision must be that you take on these patients and you can't just shelter in place and try to hide, which unfortunately so many are still doing. And you cannot sit around waiting for some sort of official guideline from the CDC or the WHO or whatever. They have been AWOL. I mean, they, they've been misleading people saying that you can't treat this acutely. And of course, you know, we know that we can and we do. Uh, so that's, that's the major uh, emphasis that I, that I would stress. Uh, All the different uh, inpatient modalities too have been uh, based on good clinical judgment, science and experience. You, know, you try stuff out and you see if it works. Absolutely. I, I think the, uh, there's no substitute for clinical experience. I deeply respect uh, the early treating doctors who have amassed a, a massive uh, experience in treating patients. 
What's your viewpoint on age? When a patient calls into AFLDS and is looking for treatment, uh, what's your gut response to somebody in their 80s as opposed to somebody in their 40s? Well, I, I don't field many of those calls in my role. Let me just tell you that up front. Uh, but I think someone who's young and healthy doesn't really require much more than a few vitamins. Uh, you know, I do agree with your, your protocol. And if, you're, uh, if you have no risk factors, you're otherwise healthy, take some vitamins and you'll be fine. Someone in their 80s, I would like to get them into Regeneron right away, into monoclonal antibody treatment right away. And that's something that's been neglected, I'm afraid, but uh, very helpful. And uh, if you want to use the term evidence-based and approved, it is. So that's, that would be my uh, first suggestion. Well, I completely agree. I was on call recently and I got a panic call from a daughter in her fifties. And she said, you know, my mom is in her late eighties. She's uh, had, she has COVID-19. She's on day six and they've called her doctor twice. And he's said, there's no treatment for COVID-19 to do nothing. And I developed a visceral sense of, Oh my Lord, this virus is going to slaughter this woman in her 80s, and we have to jump into action. And just as you said, uh, again, the same gut instinct immediately got a monoclonal antibody, immediately got the other drugs in sequence. It takes about four to six drugs. And, you know, I was so gratified to learn. Uh, I think about four or five days later, the daughter contacted me. Thank goodness. Mom got sick for a while there, but she pulled through and did not require hospitalization. And it's my experience that people that high up in the 80s, certainly in their 90s, if they're at home and still functioning at home and are in their apartments and they develop COVID-19, it's almost inevitable they'll end up in the hospital because uh, the virus preferentially preys upon the elderly and creates such a high degree of symptoms, uh, whether it be uh, effort intolerance, difficulty breathing, uh, weakness, low blood pressure and dizziness, uh, and to the point of collapse. I've had some of my seniors, actually, their initial presentation has been a hip fracture or a knee fracture because they're so weak, they basically fell and broke their hip. And then they have COVID-19 uh, you know, diagnosed upon the emergency evaluation. Uh, or in this woman who's just had the cardiac arrest, for instance, uh, these are these dramatic cases. And it's part of really the, the fabric of the COVID-19 story that's evolving right now. You know, we see these numbers up on the TV screen in terms of deaths. And now we've passed a point, Richard, where there have been just as many deaths since the release of the vaccines as there was before the vaccines. And as uh, many have pointed out, the absolute risk reduction with the vaccines is so sufficiently low, it wouldn't have made an impact on the pandemic curves. And it looks like that's the case. Do you have any final words for our audience for America Out Loud? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to amplify what you said about experience. Clinical experience is the underpinning of all medical practice. And evidence-based medicine has relegated that to the lowest level of evidence. So in other words, their feeling is that you don't really need experience to practice medicine. It's actually an absurd notion. And one of the things that I think you deserve a lot of credit for is reintroducing the notion of professional authority. And physicians have authority, but only if they are practicing physicians. I mean, Tony Fauci hasn't seen a patient in probably 40 years. He doesn't have professional authority. We do. We do. And we have to reassert that. And we have to reject this notion that clinical experiences are relevant to the practice of medicine. It is absolutely crucial to the practice of medicine. 
I completely agree. And, you know, we saw a flash of that last year. I don't know if, if many of the listeners caught this, but when former President Trump got COVID-19 and you, you knew sooner or later it was going to happen, you know, he was going without a mask. He was, uh, you know, meeting with people. He was unafraid. Uh, not that the mask was going to do much of anything, but he was not falling in line with, uh, with the narrative here. And he got COVID-19. And he, he put, as a precautionary measure, he was taken to Walter Reed Hospital, uh, but he had a very kind of brash and confident young doctor came out, very handsome. I remember he looked at the camera and he gave a wink. He said, you know, we're going to get President Trump the Regeneron antibodies. We're going to get him the other drugs, and he's going to get right through this COVID-19 illness and be right back on the job. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. When I look at it now, I said, boy, that's what we needed. We needed young doctors like that, that had a lot of confidence. If we could have emulated that doctor uh, a 20-fold, and that would have been our task force. And if every American would have been treated the way former President Trump was treated, particularly our seniors, our people in their 70s or 80s, uh, we would have uh, probably uh, reduced the death rate due to COVID-19 by about 85%. And I've testified to that. And, uh, you know, it wasn't my idea about medical authority. It actually came from when I spent time with Tucker Carlson in his studio in Florida, where, uh, you know, at one point in time, he started really getting worked up during the interview. And he just looked up at the camera. He said, listen, he's, I don't know if you know this doctor, but go look him up. He has authority. And I started to realize, you're right, Richard, you're right. We do have authority and we need to exert our authority. And now is the time, the time of crisis. Who else is going to do this? Is it going to be a public health official that's going to save America? No, it's going to be doctors showing their leadership and showing their skills, uh, doctors who can support one another, all playing critical roles, whether it be in direct practice, whether it be uh, critically in, in terms of uh, administration and execution of uh, organizations like you're doing with American Frontline Doctors, and people like me, where I practice medicine, but I spend a large amount of my time as an editor and an author uh, and in a collaborator trying to move uh, the field forward with our peer review process, which unfortunately has been, cor been corrupted in so many different levels in the, in the medical literature. So Richard, well, I want to, this has been a terrific interview. We're coming up at the break. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter. Anytime, my friend. Take care. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. <laughs> 